1: My name is Crystal, and I am the host of Stories from Palestine podcast and also a licensed tour guide by the Palestinian Ministry of Tourism. Together with my colleague Salim, we are organizing three 10-day programs this year to discover Palestine. There is still space in the upcoming program mid-March and also in June and October. We travel around the West Bank, Jerusalem and Jaffa with small groups, maximum 10 people. We provide historical background, we introduce you to the Palestinian heritage and we make sure that you get to meet a lot of locals. We stay in family-run hotels and we also spend two nights with Palestinian families. We do some short hikes, easy hikes and during the October program you can also join a day of olive harvesting. If you are interested, then check out our website for more information. I will ask Roberto if he can add a link to the show notes of the podcast, but you can also write it down. It is storiesfrompalestine.info.
0: Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, We'll bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged.
2: Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that we're going to take a trip outside Jerusalem. In fact, with my guest, Chris Whitman, we're going to take a short journey to Gaza. Chris has been working for a few years now for an NGO called Medico. Obviously, we're going to talk about uh, his work and what Medico does in Gaza. And uh, with uh, Chris, we're going to talk about uh, the current living condition of the city, his work more importantly, the connectivity, the connections between Gaza and the rest of Palestine, including Jerusalem. But first of all, Chris, welcome.
3: Thank you, Roberto. And uh, I've always wanted to say this on a podcast, but uh, long-time listener, first-time guest.
2: <laughs> and it's a pleasure for me. Um, I just want to ask you something about yourself, so if you can tell us a little bit more about how you got to work for Medico, and more importantly, what Medico is.
3: Sure. Um, so, I, when Corona hit, I, like everybody else, kind of had this um, epiphany that I need to change something in my life. And uh, I had lived in Palestine from 2009 to 2016, and I moved back to the U.S., and if you can tell by my accent, I'm from outside of Boston, um, and... I had lived there for seven years and then I went back to Boston and I was living in Boston and I just, you know, realized and re-remembered everything I disliked about the city and living there. And I just decided, you know, when Corona hit, it was time for a change. Um, And so when Corona hit, I started looking into my options to moving back to Palestine. So, you know, I was applying for all the jobs on ReliefWeb or Jobs.ps, all these other places and eventually, I saw the job posting for Medico International, and I had a friend there who used to work. And so I reached out to him, and we started talking about um, the potential of me working there. And after uh, you know having a nice interview process and going through the motions, you know they eventually decided to uh, to hire me as their first non German speaking uh, head of office. So my position is representative for Medico International in Israel and Palestine so i started that job officially in january of 2021 but uh due to corona i was stuck in germany for some months um but in that time period i got to learn a lot about the organization and about uh how we work in germany how we work outside so right now our palestine office or is the only office outside of germany and Uh, We've had other offices in Nicaragua and uh, South Africa and other places, uh, but we work in about 36 different countries. And the organization was really founded to challenge the way that humanitarian aid uh, as a concept was articulated and actualized. Um, While people who are maybe familiar with Palestine, but maybe not other places, it is still very common for, you know, let's say white savior NGOs to basically deliver whatever aid that they have and just... That's it they de- they deliver aid and they walk away um medico's approach is quite the opposite it's to build relationships with local organizations who know the context who know the beneficiaries who know people who are uh, at risk or dealing with any plethora of issues, and to uh, work with them on you know let's say those types of projects that are absolutely needed, but impossible to fund. This is the type of work that we look to support, whether it be in Palestine, whether it be in Israel, whether it be in other places. Um, and so we have that same ideology, uh, and that same mindset when we look at our work uh, in Israel and Palestine. So we, we have you know, two large projects that uh, we work in. I think we're going to focus on one today. In that um, our work in Gaza, we've been working with uh, the Palestinian Medical Relief Society uh, for a number of years now, about, in, about 40 years in total. But really, the project in Gaza has been going strong for about 10 years, where we help support a chronic disease center in Gaza City that has uh, three public health centers that kind of funnel into it. The public health centers are in uh, a village outside of Khan Yunis in the south. Uh, in Umm al-Nasir, which is a Bedouin uh, area in the northern Gaza Strip, and then one in Jabalia, in the refugee camp of Jabalia. So um, we've been working with this project now for about 10 years, and hopefully we have another you know number of years to keep this project going. Um, and it reaches tens of thousands, actually, of almost about 100,000 um, patients per year who are dealing with issues like diabetes, hypertension, um, these kind of chronic diseases that are uh, often missed in the humanitarian space. We like to look at things that are more emergency based. Um, and we're looking more at chronic issues. Um, and for those people who don't know, Palestinians have, uh, t- they're typically number three on the list of highest di- diabetes rates in the world. Um, the other two are typically uh, Native Americans uh, or Indians, for those people who are more activist-oriented. Um <laughs> And I forgot. Who, so the Native Americans of uh, what's the United States and the, the Native Americans, the First Peoples, uh, First Nations of Canada are typically one and two. And Palestinians are typically number three. Um, so there's a direct and aboriginals are number four, usually. So there's uh, so those people who are making the settler colonial case, settler colonialism case against Israel. There you go. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so, yeah, so that's kind of a. Uh, so I've been in this position now for two years, and this position has allowed me to go to Gaza. For you know, for 15 years, I had been, I had been working on Palestinian-related issues um, and never was able to visit. I was always on a student visa or, some, or a tourist visa, uh, but now I have the distinct pleasure of being able to kind of go on a regular basis. And so um, my first time going was about 10 days after the war uh, in May of 2021. Um, it's a funny story if you want to hear it, Roberto. Okay, so I got to I got I got to uh, Jerusalem in middle of March of 2021, and uh, you know I'm transitioning to a job. I'm trying to get acclimated. Blah blah blah. Around April, I decided to apply for the permit to uh, to be able to go to Gaza. There's a huge process for it. Maybe we'll talk about it. Um, So I applied for the permit from Israel to be able to cross through Eras, and I applied in in mid April obviously the war starts, I believe it was on the 10th of May, 9th or 10th of May. And in the middle of this going on, I got approval for my permit. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Uh, So finally, the ceasefire happens, you know, Israel stops bombing Gaza. And I called the army and I said, "Uh, yes, uh, I applied for this permit and it got approved. And they said, no, yeah. So (laughs) I said, yeah, so can I go? And they said, if you, your uh, permit is approved, yeah, go, go, go. I said, okay. <laughs> so I called our partner in Gaza to set up the other permit to enter as well. And so my first time going was, yeah, eight or nine, maybe 10 days after the first war. And since then, I've uh, gone for about 25 times in total, 20, 25 times. You know, averaging, I would say three or four days at a time. Uh, my longest has been, I think, eight or nine days. Um And yeah, so... Um, maybe I'll stop there because I know I can kind of go on and on and on. So maybe I'll let Roberto decide which direction he wants to take this.
2: There are a few things I want to ask about uh, your travels to Gaza, but uh, because we started with your job and we we're talking about medical and you obviously we we're talking about public health. I just want to get a sense of, uh, you know, public health in Gaza at the moment, since you certainly have a good uh, view of what's going on there.
3: Sure. Um, I mean, I think the easiest answer is this, is that on paper, it looks very nice. In the NGO world, it looks very nice on paper. If you look at the amount of, uh, if you go to Gaza, you're going to see a hospital, what feels like every other block. And, you know, this one was donated by Saudi Arabia. This one was donated by Oxfam. This one was donated by this Sheikh in Oman, whatever. You see all these. And on the outside, you're like, wow, this is uh, this is really impressive. People really care about health. But when you actually start to visit these centers, you realize there's nothing in it. it they might have a few supplies, they might have a pharmacy, they might have a, a nurse practitioner or two. But you're looking at a hospital with almost nothing in it because most doctors who are trained and qualified, um, you, you know, they can find they can have a better job, you know, opening a private clinic or simply leaving Gaza. Um, doctors are quite the target for a brain drain in Gaza. So you know when. It, when an aggression happens against Gaza, this is typically why you see so many statistics about you know how many beds are left and how m- injuries are not being treated. But yet on paper, if you look at what they have infrastructure wise it 's sound. But when you actually scratch beneath the surface, what you find is is that you find a great lack of anything and everything, and you whether it be basic goods you know the typical numbers we regurgitate are anywhere between thirty and sixty percent of primary uh, medications are not in stock and this can be uh you know higher during you know bad times quote unquote or they can be lower during good times but the fact that they're basic medication and when i say basic you know we're talking about things that you know insulin insulin something that is necessary for just living just existing uh for people with diabetes and then when you take it to other things like, you know things that deal with um you know chronic headaches or migraines or you know all these basic medicines that we take for granted in the west that you can buy at your local pharmacy and they have year supplies worth are uh, tough to find and so actually our partner PMRS this is their number one thing that they do is they provide these they provide the basic medication and for a very cheap cost because what happens is if the the governmental ministry of health does not have them people have to resort to the pharmacies and the pharmacies because of the great shortage Charge higher prices. So, this also exasperates the problem that exists. But the problem, first and foremost, is the fact that Israel doesn't allow enough uh, medication in. Whether it be, you know, it's not just food that they don't let in on a regular basis or not just luxury items, it's also medication. Because it's a low priority. And this is a lot of work that NGOs are spending is lobbying the army or lobbying the civil administration or lobbying Ashdod to let in uh this kind of equipment or this kind of uh, basic supplies i mean we just saw a story what was it a week and a half ago that israel is intentionally holding up x-ray machines x-ray machines for what why i mean we've had our partners had problems you know since we've done this project whether it be for the pcr machine that they had to wait for during corona or whether it be um the extra blood test machine that they were waiting for for a long time to be able to do early detection of diabetes, all this different stuff, and it's just you know completely unnecessarily held up at customs or at civil administration or others.
2: Let me ask something about uh, NGOs, particularly you know if they're connected to uh, uh, Arab countries. Um, you mentioned hospitals donated by you know Oxford, but also by Saudi Arabia. Did you see any change since the uh, uh, so-called Abraham Accords? Uh, did anything change in terms of a help coming from, uh, you know, most of uh, Gulf countries?
3: No. I mean, I think what you find in Gaza in general is that uh, Kuwait is probably the biggest supporter, and they have nothing to do with the Abraham Accords. Saudi Arabia is pretty decently up there, but you don't see many things from the Emirates. Qatar, actually, sorry, I'll take that back. Qatar is number one. Uh, Kuwait number two. Um, but no, you don't see much from the Emirates. You don't see much from Bahrain. Um, you don't see anything from Morocco or obviously Sudan. Um, no, I don't think it has any connection to that. Uh, I think, and also if you look at these buildings, most of them were built, um, somewhere between 2009. So Operation Cast Lead to, uh, 2014, uh, with, uh, what was that? Uh, My Brother's Keeper or was that Fr- Guardians of the Brothers? I forget these Orwellian names. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so no, I don't see any. I don't see any connection between them. They're mostly of countries that do not have any relations, any relations with um, with Israel.
2: I asked mostly because you obviously have an expertise and uh, you know a good uh, idea of what's going on there. Similarly to what's going on in either in East Jerusalem or on the West Bank, obviously there were like either expectations or I guess people were betting on uh, the Gulf countries to start uh, investing, whether it was building or uh, moving into the areas. But so far. There has been more like a lot of talk, but nothing real. So obviously we can speculate why that is not happening. You know, what's the politics behind it, whether they're waiting for better times. But obviously there's a disconnect between the rhetoric and the propaganda that was sold, particularly under the Trump administration at the time the Abraham Accords were sold and the reality on the ground.
3: Yeah, just, talking just, about just, the, hold on, just interject real quick. I mean, there was a funny thing that came out. I think it was from Yadiyoth Uh, uh they, they said that, you know, they did a study of how many Israelis have been to the Emirates. And they said upwards of, you know, 200,000 or something, which is, you know, that's a huge number. And when you think of the Israeli population, let's be real, we're talking about Jewish Israelis. So we're talking about 8 million, 8.5 million. 200, 250,000 have been to the Emirates. They did a reverse study about how many Emiratis have been to Israel. And they said it was maybe 1,200. <laughs> Now, then they said they had so somebody did a uh, Freedom of Information Act about how many Bahrainis and they said the number is so small, we can't even calculate it. <laughs> so, um, no, and the number one reason why, because they also did a study about how why people Emiratis or Bahrainis or others are not coming. It's the number one issue is shame. It's a shame. Of, uh, and they're afraid of how they'll be treated by Palestinians for sell for their country selling out. I think that says a lot. I mean, again, we can connect this to the World Cup if we want as well. Uh, we can make that into another issue, and we can all lament about how Morocco didn't win. Um, but that, uh, yeah. So I think it's a direct correlation between that.
2: Let me bring the uh, let me bring you to a question on Morocco. Just you mentioned that, and I had it sure. here in my list of uh, questions. Oh, so you were in Gaza for most of the World Cup, um, and obviously when Morocco came to play big games. What I found fascinating, watching the games from Chicago, was that you obviously had uh, Morocco supporters in uh, Gaza, and uh, plenty of Moroccan supporters in uh, Ashdod, just uh, across the border. Mm. So to me, that was like an image of this multi-layered uh, society that is Israel. But also the fact that there's a lot of misunderstanding, and uh, within also Israeli society here, you have Moroccans, many of them who migrated only a few decades ago, or certainly the parents migrated, with a deep attachment still to the country and culture. And on the other side, you have Palestinians who are supporting Morocco for sense of brotherhood, but yet you know they're separated by that border. and And I was wondering, how did you uh, experience the World Cup, and certainly Morocco uh, being in Gaza?
3: Uh, I mean, in general, uh, maybe we should give a little p- I'll give one minute about maybe Palestinian sports interests. Um, so people are usually very surprised about which teams Palestinians support. and But if you live among Palestinians, you understand it very easily because, you know, for a better part of 15 years, Palestinians have been getting uh, just La Liga, which is the Spanish league. So if you've ever been to Palestinian spaces and if you're ever, especially around people under 25, which is, you know, like 70% of the population, uh, you're going to get asked, do you like Real Madrid or do you like Barcelona? And those have political connotations and usually not the ones that Europeans think they have. Um, just for those who don't know, Barca tends to be supported by, let's say, center, center-right center Palestinians or let's say non-hardcore lefties. And hardcore lefties tend to support Real Madrid, which is hilarious if you know anything about the two teams. Anyways, um, but outside of the Liga, what you tend to find is that Palestinians support uh, Bayern Munich, um, which just hurts me um, on every level because I hate Bayern Munich. Um, but they tend to like really good teams. And people are always surprised by this. Like, oh, shouldn't you root for the underdog team? And it's like, no, we want to see winners. We want to see good teams play well. And so when Morocco was first in the World Cup, I think that they were they were ranked 32nd or 30, uh, 30 yeah, I think 32nd. And so nobody had really hopes, but every, every Palestinian picked two teams, usually one Arab team that they like, which was usually Tunisia, because Tunisia, Palestinians are developing a much stronger connection to Tunisia, um, because travel has become easier the past 10 years or so. Um, And then they would pick a European team that they can tolerate enough. So usually, it was Germany until they did the, you know, the covering the mouth thing. And then, you know, they usually like to pick an underdog, an underdog European team. But so... You know, the first rounds, the the uh what do we call it? the the group matchups? Um so during the group matchups, people were like, Yeah, okay, Morocco's winning, no big deal. But then once it got to the point where it was uh the semifinals, then that's when it turned up. People were like, No, it's real now. They're legitimately in. <laughs> um and that's when it became, you know, uh Moroccomania, basically. Uh whether it be West Bank or whether it be Gaza or East Jerusalem, people went nuts for this because it became real. It became the Cinderella story. It wasn't just, you know, you cheer for them because, of you know, Arab brothers. No, this, the Arab brothers who were kicking ass <laughs> like that. And they weren't just beating, you know, no offense to Slovakia. They weren't beating Slovakia. They weren't beating Sweden. I mean, they were beating Portugal. They were beating Spain. They, uh, Tunisia beat France. Um, you know, the, so these kind of matchups really changed the perspective that Palestinians had about the Moroccan team. And I mean, you went from, you know, uh people like silently like cheering on Morocco to just really Moroccomania. Uh that's what I like to call it in English. Um and it was fantastic. It was great to see. And you know, it's unfortunate that they lost uh they that they lost to France, but okay. It is what it is. You know, fourth place for a team that was ranked 32nd is not bad.
2: And I think all of the stories connected to most of the players. I mean, you, you take uh, people like Hakimi, yeah. you know, there, there's, there are all of these stories of, uh, you know, children born out, you know, migrants' children and, you know, growing there and still bearing this dual identity, uh, which, which I think is very important in the larger context. And I also think it gives a sense of redemption in a sense of like, you know, you can be an Arab, you can play at that level and and it's fine and i think for palestinians it also becomes an idea of you know what the future may bring should the palestinians be allowed to play football at that level right i mean i i think too they they may have uh talents that we don't know about them just because uh israel doesn't allow them to play actually soccer at that level
3: if i'll take that's in two different directions um i, I agree obviously completely um so i would say Something that was different. So I'll start with a funny story. So something that's different. Usually, when football games end, soccer games end um, in Palestine, uh, that you know everybody gets in their cars and goes home at the same time, so the traffic is insane. But what you noticed when Morocco was playing was that nobody, you know, the the streets were dead during the game, except in uh, in Clock Square in Ramallah because they had a huge they had a huge screen showing the game. So, but everybody knew that Morocco was going to do something Palestine-related at the end of the game. And they kept the cameras on the fields afterwards and like everybody was waiting like, oh, what are they going to do this time? What are they going to do this time? Yay, Palestinian flag. (laughs) So, you know, the fact that you could, you know, leave after the game and get home in like two minutes when it would have taken you 30 in traffic. um, It was just just such an interesting difference from other World Cups. And people had a vested interest in a post-game commemoration or act uh, from their perspective, an act of resistance. Um, So that was always interesting to me. Now, the other thing I'll do uh, about what you said, because I absolutely agree, is that the traditional model for, let's say, Arab football players was that you go to a European team and you play for the European team because you wanted a seat at their table. What Morocco did was they showed that you can make your own table and you can compete. And I think that says a lot politically. And I think it says a lot where Palestinians are at politically, because the Palestinian argument or the Palestinian national movement was, I would argue, uh, forced to articulate itself this way, was that we just want a seat at the international table of nations. And I think what you see in Palestinian society, especially if you talk to anybody under, I don't know, 25, 30, 35, you know, again, when we're talking about the overall majority of the population, you find that Palestinians are not, no longer looking for a seat at the table. They're looking for to control the table. And I think that's a very good analogy. And you see this more and more with uh, social media activism, with how uh, young activists in Palestine are articulating their political ideology. Uh, They're no longer looking for just, you know, the seat at the liberal table of nations. They're looking to change, to make that table Palestinian, to keep that table Palestinian. And I says that connection to the Moroccan team about them intentionally uh, creating their own Moroccan table to compete at a European uh, football match in an Arab country. Uh, I think that's I, I think it's extremely inspire, inspiring, not only on the field, but I think outside the field as well.
2: I definitely agree with that. I, I I could see that happening, you know, following again social media and discourses about Morocco. And of course, you had you know a lot of people like mentioning internal issues with Morocco, and that's sure. fine. But I always hard. felt like it was important to to acknowledge that yes, every country has its own problems, and you know, particular issue Western Sahara for Morocco is a big deal. But I think we should have taken also the positive aspect that you just mentioned. I mean, it's important to show that, you know, you as a country are able to then take control of that table and not just being subservient to the others. Like, oh, we're we're good enough. We're sitting with you. No, we are sitting with our own and we're good. Yeah. And I think that was very important. I I just want to ask you something, you know, going back to your work and how you start moving uh, in and out uh, uh, to and from Gaza. And, you know, at a personal level, how did that work out? I mean, in terms of like, if you can give us a, you know, sort of a micro view of the difficulties and challenges in moving in and out of Gaza and moving also within Gaza
3: itself. Sure. Um, So I I should preface this in a couple different ways. Uh, The first way is, is that uh, if you wish to go through to Gaza through Eres, which is the Israeli checkpoint between uh, the state of Israel and Gaza Strip. Uh, you need two different levels of permission you need one from the Israeli uh, army and you need the civil administration and you need one from uh, uh from Hamas from the de authorities the DFA we like to call them um now what i would argue is that this this when you go to when you go to Erez so let's say you get your permits approved and you're ready to go you go to Erez and it looks like a lar- it looks like an airport a small airport and it looks like a a terminal so when you go there um your interaction with Israelis is you know, quite minimal. You simply get your, you get your bag put through a generic scanner, um, and then you, know, you go to a booth, you tell them who you are, what you're doing, and if you have all the permits, they basically just wave you through. Because they don't care what goes into Gaza. I, I think I can't stress this enough. It's just like people are always surprised at Kalundia checkpoint because the Israelis don't check you going into Ramallah. They only check you when you're coming out. It's the exact same concept. They don't care what goes in, but there are many, 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 many rules about what can come out of Gaza. So when you go in, you're basically, you know, you're basically waved through. They double check your passport number, you're waved through. Um, And then when you go to the other side, uh, you go through a process of, you know, dealing with the PA, checking in, dealing with Hamas, checking in. And then in theory, you know, you get asked a few questions and then you go into Gaza City. And there's really only one road or one way from uh from areas to gaza city you go basically salah street and then you cross you either cut through to uh near al-shati camp or you cut through before that in uh or behlahia um so you kind of see the same thing entering and exiting um when you go now getting around gaza is incredibly easy um I mean, if depending on your organization, every organization has different rules and regulations about how you can get from point A to point B. Um, we have uh, pretty good regulations about this that allow me to, um, to take local transport and to um, take taxis or to take shared cars, things like this. And so this has also helped me a lot learn how to navigate the structure of Gaza, because I like to view Gaza like one giant city with boroughs. So for those people who have been to New York or other major cities, um, or you can even use Jerusalem as an example, people like to see Gaza as this strip with you know five or six major cities. It's not. It's one giant city on one giant infrastructure that happens to have short breaks between them. So you know if you go from if you go from Beit Hanun in the northern Gaza Strip to Rafa in the southern Gaza Strip, it's about a fifty-minute drive. And if you're to go from the sea to the buffer zone in the wall, depending on which part you're in, this could be a 10-minute drive or this can be a 20-minute drive. So we're talking about an area that's smaller than you know, almost any metropolitan city, but it has 2 million people living in incredibly dense situations. And if you're in Gaza and you take, a, you take a car to go somewhere, what I always find amazing is you can be in Beit Hanun and you can tell them this random hole-in-the-wall restaurant in Rafa. And the person knows where it is. Because it's one giant city that is disconnected from the world, meaning they don't have to know where things are in Jerusalem or Nablus or Ramallah or or Hebron, these other places. This is what they know. This is all they know. And this is all they're allowed to know. So they know it very well. Um, And it's very easy to get around. I mean, the streets are wider in Gaza. The cities are on a grid, like uh, the Egyptians rebuilt Gaza, I believe, in the late 40s, early 50s, and they made everything a gridded city. So whether you're in Khan Yunus or Gaza City or Beit Hanun, Jabalia, even with all the camps, they've still created a gridded city, which also makes you relate to your city differently. Um, This is something I have a very hard time articulating. Those people who are familiar with the West Bank, you know, my my old joke is that, you know, God's not a city planner. If you've ever been to Jerusalem or if you've ever been to the West Bank, Uh, in Gaza, everything is planned. So, to, you know, when you, it's also a joke in, in Palestine to, you know, when you get directions, uh, it's straight, straight, and there's, a, there's a tree, and the tree's a little bit shorter than the other tree, you want to ignore those trees, and you want to go straight again, and then there's a left, but it kind of curls, you know, these are the way directions are given in, in West Bank, and you still don't get there, um, but in Gaza, people are like, okay, so you go up uh, Umar Mukhtar Street, you take a left onto Ali Basha Street, you take a right, and they all know it. uh, You can ask anybody how to get around. And it's it's like, so this relation to space is completely different. And what I always find funny is like, if you meet people in Ramallah and you ask them about how to get around Nablus, they might have only been to Nablus once in their life, twice in their life. Janine, probably never in their life. Um, Now, of course, we can explain why. um, And it's obvious for people who are familiar. But in Gaza, everybody knows these different places and has friends in all these different localities because it's one giant city. We just we just drew lines in some places because they were camps, or because you know a family was bigger in this area, or whatever else. So this relation to space is completely different, and I always find this very very interesting. Um, yeah, and just like there are no traffic lights in Gaza, pretty much. You only find them. Uh, I can think of one downtown in Gaza City. You don't find them. Just like this is like Egypt. You don't find street lights in Egypt, uh, like um, traffic lights. Um, so also similar to Gaza. So this relation to space is something I constantly am uh, intrigued by or interested by, that, you know, how people relate to space, how people build, how people uh, get around, you know, just like in Gaza, it's very, okay, I'll start with West Bank first, and then I'll let you, I'll pause over, Roberto, because I see he's really antsy. Um, when you're in the West Bank, you know, we have service, Fords, that go around, the yellow vans, for those people who have maybe been there before. These yellow vans have fixed places that they go, and this is how most Palestinians get around. Whether it be from Ramallah to Kalundia, or whether it be from Bethlehem to Jericho, whatever else. The most common form of transportation still to this day are these yellow vans. And on the side of the yellow vans, they have a black sign that says where they're going. And they're not on a time schedule. They just go when they fill up. These don't exist in Gaza. Nothing of the sort exists in Gaza. What exists in Gaza are individual cars. That, and so if you're in Gaza, you hear people honking all the time. And this drives West Bankers nuts. Um, So you hear people honking all the time because they're they're offering a ride because Palestinians in Gaza love to drive, but they have nowhere to go. And gas is very expensive in Gaza. It's the exact same price as it is in West Bank. So right now it's like 6.4 shekels per liter, which is very expensive. For the Americans that are listening, it's about $10 a gallon. Um, yeah, so stop complaining about $3 a gallon. Um, (laughs) uh, never, it'll never stop boggling me how much Americans complain about gas prices when they still pay a fraction of what everybody else pays. Anyways, um, so people just drive around and, you know, on their way to work, they just pick people up and bring them along the way. So people will honk their horns. They'll slow down to you and they'll say, where are you going? And you just tell them where you're going and either they stop and you get in the car or they just keep driving. And, you know, that's how you get around Gaza. And so this informal transportation uh, mechanism is incredibly interesting to me because, you know, a lot of it depends on whether the person, the driver, the driver wasn't anticipating where you want to go. So he's making a decision on the spot. "Mm, Do I want to go that way or not? What do I have going on? And they make the decision and then they go. Um, So, again, it's relation to space. And like every ride in, in Gaza City is either one shekel or two shekels. So, you know, 30 cents or 60 cents, depending on how long you're in the car. Um, and it's very, it's just so easy to get around. I mean, you can easily just go from one shared car to another, to another, to another. You can take the shared car down to Khan Yunis if you want. Whatever. You just ask, you just say where you're going. It's very simple. So this relation to space is constantly something I'm just, uh, I'm constantly intrigued by.
2: As an urban historian, I'm fascinated by space. And I would agree with you that, uh, going around Ramallah is, mental at times uh it, 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 you need to know you need to have point of references because otherwise it doesn't make any sense and, and i know that uh, you know going off on the route from jerusalem to ramallah to to go to IPS. so i know my way but if i have to ask i have to have point of references which now I learned by heart it's a supermarket in a Knafest shop. So I know exactly (laughs) what I need to ask for the driver, not uh, the name or or the street itself, because it doesn't mean anything to anybody. Right. Uh, And of course there's an hotel nearby, which also helps, you know, the driver to get a sense where the direction I'm going to. Uh, So I I didn't know much about Gaza. So I'm, I'm, but I'm not surprised too, because I know. So the planning that the British, um, put in and the Egyptians too. So, uh, That brings me to the next question, because in general, when Westerners, Europeans or Americans think about Gaza, they think about this hub for terrorists to hide and, uh, you know, just launch rockets against Israel. But it's, it's also a city. You just mentioned that. So I was wondering if in a nutshell, you can share with us what you think Westerners don't know about Gaza and they should know.
0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
3: i mean so you're asking two questions and the first one's very easy they know nothing um, about gaza i'm not saying that i'm not saying that as an insult i'm not saying that as like some kind of you know look at me i'm so smart Uh, i'm just saying the the misconceptions about gaza are so abundant Um, and I'm not going to sit here and just provide counter-haspera, like I'm not interested in this either. What I like to provide is what is. Um, So what you find in Gaza, you find people that are dealing with an unbearable situation, whereby on a political level, they're basically confined to a large city. And a large city, by Palestinian standards, meaning that the largest Palestinian concentration, the largest concentration of Palestinians in a city is Gaza. It's not Jerusalem. Actually, Jerusalem is about half Jerusalem, about 350,000, 400,000 Palestinians if we're, you know, uh, taking uh, PCBS. Um, if you look at Gaza, you're looking at 700,000, 800,000, 900,000 Palestinians are living in this urban center. So you have a people who are living under a situation where they cannot move. Uh, they cannot they cannot travel freely. They cannot um, study freely. They cannot uh, get jobs easily. They're living in a situation they have no control over anything they do. And they're trying to make the best out of that situation for them, their kids, their community, their neighborhood, whatever. So, like, I always love these pages, uh, mostly on Twitter of, oh, did you know that they have a luxury mall in Gaza? Yes, there is a there are people who have money in Gaza. You can go to the poorest village in China where people are wearing leaves. And you're still going to find somebody with a Mercedes. I guarantee you, because I've seen it, I guarantee you, you will find this. So this idea that every single person has to be eating dirt um, in a poor area, it's just, it's like one of these things, like, I I just don't understand this. I mean, I guess it works on a very shallow uh, hospital level, but, you know, so people are trying to make the best out of the situation that they have. And, you know, one of the things that Gaza has that West Bank doesn't have, they have the sea. And if you go or if you are there from, let's say, March until early November, people are at the sea every day because it's free and they can. They're trying to take advantage. They're trying to, you know, just live a normal life. And they're trying to uh, provide the best for their kids that they can. And they're doing it in the toughest situation possible. And, you know, you have a place that has unemployment officially at 48%. Unemployment at 48% officially, which we both, which we all know means it's much, much higher. And if you look at university graduates, that number jumps to 80%. So you have people who are, you know, it, just like the cost of, uh, not the cost, the daily salaries are anywhere between 35 uh, to 60 shekels a day. This is a normal salary for Gazans. Now, for those who don't know shekels, about 35 shekels, is about $10, about three to one. So 60 shekels is about $17. So, you know, this is what people are working. This is what people are living in. In a situation they can't change. And this this echoes the larger larger Palestinian experience. They're living under a system that they can't influence. And I don't just mean they can't influence it, you know, through the normal democratic means. There's nothing they can do except violence to influence the system. And we all know, because of the disparity of strength, that that violence is most likely going to come back tenfold on them. So, you know, if you go to Gaza and you, say, and you want to talk to people about, you know, uh, what I always find very funny also is that people love to say, oh, in Gaza, they're living under a totalitarian regime where they can't talk. No, Gazans will talk to you. They'll talk your ear off about, you know, whether it be rockets or whether it be uh, Hamas or whether they'll talk about anything. What they don't want to do is they don't want to go onto media, you know, on NBC News or CNN, and you know, start talking because get, they know they're going to get asked stupid questions that fit a narrative or a framework that's meant to de- demonize themselves and their and uh, those around them. So if you want to talk about rockets to, to Palestinians and Gaza, they're more than happy to. There's a huge, diverse plethora of spectrum that they have about this pers- about this issue just like they have about every other issue, because they are just like everybody else. Like something I find very infuriating, Roberto, and I'm sure you're the same way. You know, it's this old old joke that we have to hear a million times, two Jews, three opinions, right? Ha ha ha, two Jews, three opinions. Okay. Uh, but, But yet we have 15 million Palestinians and they all have one opinion about it. And what I find with Palestinians is that they have about 600 million political opinions per person. So if you wanna talk, talk about Hamas in Gaza, go to Gaza and go talk to them. They're more than happy to talk. Trust me, they will give you every critique they ever had. Um, so this idea that they can't talk or they don't talk, no, they just know what you're after. <laughs> they know that you're trying to demonize them ultimately and you're trying, to create a, you're trying to create a fictional scarecrow of them. So yeah, they're not very interested in talking to you. That's not because they're afraid of Hamas, it's because they know your motives and your motives are not genuine. If you go there talking to good people from Gaza, I've had nothing but amazing experiences talking about anything and everything from the cost of bread and the reason why it costs the, what it costs to um, the legitimacy or illegitimacy of using rockets as a form of resistance to alternative modes of nonviolent resistance, or the way to strike in Gaza, as in like Idrib, like labor strike, all these different things. Gazans are more than happy to talk about it. So this idea that, you know, they always have one monolithic opinion about it, and there's no whatever else. No, there's a spectrum of it. And it depends on, you know, what's going on, and who they're talking to. And they're very careful, because they know you know they're not stupid. They know how their words are going to be twisted by those that they're talking to. So it really any issue. They're more they'll you know whether it be Moroccan football or whether it be about something else. Uh, Gazans are just as just as happy to discuss and debate and whatever else.
2: It reminds me of the fact that every time uh, all of these big networks. Uh, Bring the Palestinians in any one of these shows. The first question is to condemn openly Hamas as a terrorist organization, but they they never really go into the you know the the questions, the politics. uh, Is the first thing you need to condemn Hamas as a terrorist organization? It's like, can we move on and talk (laughs) about what am I here supposed to talk about instead of just being fixated on that? But uh, all of these networks. They want to hear uh, this kind of mantra as as a first statement, which I found uh, disturbing at some point and useless, to be honest. Now I, I want to I, I want to bring you um, to two questions. Uh, you know, as uh, we reach the end of our conversation, and one is very much about an image that I have and and, and I, I shared with my mother-in-law. Uh, my mother-in-law is of iraqi origin and uh, she lives in bersheva and in, you know obviously in the 1970s as a, an arab woman uh, she would go to gaza uh, at the market because that's where she felt home um you know in shopping the grocery in order to prepare the meals for the husband and the children you recently wrote an article for vision magazine talking about the question of uh, one state two states right mm-hmm. now you made the point that you think in many different ways and for different reasons this argument of one state is gaining some tractions and, and i was wondering if you can just give us a sense of uh you know your views and also your views may have changed given that this article was written a few years back
3: yeah so i mean in general i think what you've found over the past uh 10 years is that if nothing else support for the two-state solution has gone down um, precipitously, you know, when they started polling in the mid nineties or early nineties, the numbers were anywhere between 60 to 90%, depending on what was going on at the time, you know, when Netanyahu during his first term was digging under Al-Aqsa, the numbers went down. Um, but other times, uh, you know, it was seen as the only thing that could, the only solution that can happen, you know, during the second Intifada, those numbers were very high for support of two States. Um, but what you find now in this, let's say post Second Intifada era is that there's um, growing support for one state. And I would argue that if you, I would argue that if you look at studies in certain ways, because the studies I would argue still sociologically ask the questions in a very antiquated way. So one of the things that um, Sir, Palestinians are one of the most surveyed people on earth. Um, I don't know if you know that, um, and they're constantly asked this question. You know, one state versus two state, or what would your solution be? Um, and depending on who's asking, it, you can tell what kind of response they're trying to get. So one of the most common ways that they ask them is sometimes they'll give them options, you know, five to six different options. And you'll always find, and I always love this, you always find, uh, so the options will give, you know, two states, one state with equal rights between Jews and Arabs, um, a confederation, um, you know, and some other, you know, fringe ideas. Okay, But then they'll have a seventh answer with an asterisk next to it saying Palestinian state. And this response will get the highest. And people are like, oh, look, they want to ethnically cleanse the Jews out of of Israel. No, they're just saying they're saying one state, but they're saying it in a different way. Because, again, Palestinians are not stupid. I don't know why we have to keep pretending that they are, that they don't understand the vernacular in which is being presented to them. Because you have a spectrum of one state on both sides. this is one of the only times you're ever going to hear me make a parody argument. There is a spectrum of one state on each side. On the Israeli side, you can find one staters who believe in ethnically cleansing all Palestinians. And then you can find a few lefties, about seven of them in Tel Aviv, that believe in one state that has equal rights between uh, Palestinians and Israelis. On the Palestinian side, you have the same spectrum, but the numbers are very different. You find very few people who really realistically are sitting there going, yes, once we have this one state, we can finally push them into the sea. By the way, that's a quote that's never actually been said by a Palestinian. But anyways, but then most Palestinians are arguing a leftist perspective of one state. And what does it mean to relate to the state as a Palestinian or as a Jew or as a Circassian or as an Armenian? This is a very vibrant debate among Palestinians. So I would argue that if you look at people who answer uh, Palestinian state and those who answer one state, they're an overwhelming majority, that if you take those two numbers and put them together, and if you want to lob off, you know, even a quarter of those who say Palestinian state because you think they're expulsionists, I, I think you're wrong. But even if you do that, you're still looking at 70 plus percent of Palestinians who support some form of one state. And I think that's incredible, and I would argue as well that if you look at the numbers of people who are dependent on a PA salary, a Palestinian Authority salary, um, and those who support two states, they're almost the same number. And I think there's a direct correlation between those two things. Uh, so, you know, I put those two and two together. So I do agree with the overall uh, argument of the of the of that point. I've been making this point for maybe ten years now because this is when we saw the numbers drop. Um, and what you see on the Israeli side, I think it was Dahlia. Uh, I can't remember her last name. I apologize, Dahlia. Uh, we only met once. Um, Schindler? Is it Dahlia Schindler? That seems too easy of an answer. Yeah? Okay, it doesn't matter. Sorry, Dahlia. Um, you know, she did, a, she did a survey just last week that said, for the first time ever, Israeli Jews openly support a supremacist state over a two-state solution. And so what you're seeing is that you're seeing the logical... No, I don't know if logical is the right word. You're seeing a logical conclusion to... This sort of mentality, this sort of ideology, where at some point, Israelis have, I mean, I would argue in general, Israelis and Palestinians have both given up on two states, but they they have to say it, otherwise they're considered fringe and radical. And I think that that veneer is coming off. And Israelis, naturally, are going towards being expulsionists, and Palestinians are trying to figure out how to present an alternative. But it's hard to present an alternative and actually have that debate in the discourse while you're still actively living in it. Um, but I would argue that debate is so much more fruitful and so much more interesting on the Palestinian side. I mean, it's really just, are you an expulsionist or are you not among Israelis, <laughs> among Palestinians? You know, I, you, could, you can get a PhD on this issue just talking to Palestinians. Um, so, I, yeah, I do agree. With that. The, the, the question is, where does it go from here? Um, what's the next stage? And I think what's interesting about Gaza is at times... And I think right now, actually, because the latest surveys came out two months ago, I believe Gaza is still the highest supporters of two states. If you look at Gazans, uh, Israeli Jews and West Bank Palestinians, if you look at those three groups, Gazans are the highest supporting of two states. But we're still looking at like 41 or 42 percent. Like we're, we're talking a bare plurality. And again, I still say if you take the two answers that they give, uh, one state with full equality and a Palestinian state, because I believe these are synonymous in Palestinian vernacular, um, then you have you you have the other fifty nine percent, so that would be yeah that's my that's my summary right there.
2: Let me share with you a couple of stories, and I'll be very very brief. Sure. So just yesterday, um, I was uh, downtown Chicago to have pizza in a, one of these amazing Italian. Uh, pizza places uh that was only recently opened. not an american pizza an italian one sure (laughs) and uh a couple overheard me speaking italian with my kids and this couple was fairly young they had three kids and they came up to me and they asked me you know whether it was the real deal and i said yeah this is the real one there's another one and um you know i looked at them the woman was veiled and uh you know, maybe I just looked at them and I asked them whether they were either Egyptians or Palestinians. And uh, to their surprise, uh, you know, they well, probably to my surprise, too, was more like the fact that I was curious about them and they replied to me that they're from Gaza. Mm. And uh, I felt like, oh, that's very interesting because tomorrow I'm going to interview someone who works in Gaza. And we started this conversation. They had a very thick American accent. So I was obviously aware of the fact that Probably they grew up here, as they told me. What was interesting, is they were curious about me, and I you know, told them that I lived in Jerusalem, they told me, you know what? We've never been. Mm-hmm. We can't go to Jerusalem. We can't go to the West Bank. But we came to America, and we can live here and go wherever we want from here, but not there.
3: Right.
2: And this is parallels another story, uh, which actually had more consequences um, when I was teaching at the University of Limerick in Ireland. Uh, one relatively young guy knocked at my door uh, as he was curious about the fact that I had a poster uh, outside my door with Al-Quds, Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, we started talking about it and he said, well, I'm actually from Jerusalem and from East Jerusalem. And he told me, and you know, there are other Palestinians around. So, yeah, I'm aware of that. And, you know, and eventually we managed to sit around the table many times together. So there was him from East Jerusalem, uh, a young Palestinian woman from uh, uh, another, just outside Jerusalem, but she had an Israeli uh, passport, so she was a citizen of Israel, whereas obviously the, uh, uh, the gentleman was uh, just uh, with um, a blue ID card. Uh, we had two West Bankers, one from a small village outside Ramallah and actually the postgraduate student that was from Bethlehem and surprisingly a young woman from Gaza. And, you know, we had tons of conversation, we, we shared laughs, but also thoughts. Mm-hmm. the very fact that they couldn't in many ways have known each other had they been back home because from gaza you cannot go to where the west bank and certainly from to jerusalem and as well you know for many palestinians you know there's like a, they cannot there's a travel ban going to gaza and we were uh, sitting in ireland so in a very completely different setting green rainish uh, talking about that and uh, that brought uh asked to uh, develop a number of talks discussing connectivity and, you know the real life for palestinians that they are a people that don't know each other because they are not allowed to know each other and so i was wondering if you can speak about these uh, problems of uh, you know gazan that don't know what's going on beyond the borders they don't know israelis they don't know palestinians
3: yeah no I, I, this is something i am constantly fascinated about just like the conceptualization of space the conceptualization of self uh, within a larger collective. So as you said, Gazans cannot go to Jerusalem. They can't go to Israel. They can't go to uh, West Bank. They need a special permit. And the, even if they even if they have all the good reasons to be able to apply for it, the chances are still very low that they actually get it. Uh, West Bankers, uh, they have to be working for an international organization of some sort and have a legitimate purpose, quote unquote, uh, to be able to go there. Um, and so the connectivity is uh, little to none. Um, which also cr- creates uh, a conceptualization of the other within their own collective that dramatically is uh, contrary to the facts. Meaning, like it's very, very common that West Bankers see Gazans as just you know uh, the periphery, kind of over there, the religious fanatics. Shui, um, you know, West Bankers have this mis- these kind of conceptions. Um, you know, all oh, they're poor uh they they love hamas which is funny because i think hamas has more support in the west bank anyways um but let's ignore that um you know they and you know they kind of see them the way that maybe let's say americans view the south this is kind of the best way to say or let's say how west bankers view hebron (laughs) Um, this is how they view gaza gazans on the other hand um what i find there is such a stronger sense of connectivity even if they've never met a West Banker before, are always like, there's no question about it. There's no, um, there's no negative stereotypes. What the only stereotype that they have that can be perceived as negative is, you know, they just don't understand what West Bankers are going through, meaning that they think every West Banker just works in Israel. Like, this is a common conception that they can just travel from Jericho to Tel Aviv and that's it. The, the, the open border, no checkpoints, no military. The settlements are not that big of a deal because they have a, you know, the last time they had any sort of connectivity, what's the first intifada? And again, something, a number that I'll stress a million times, and I'm surprised I haven't done it yet uh, 19.5. This is the average age of Palestinians, 19.5, which means half the population is under 19. The average American is 46 years old. The average Israeli is 28. Um, So this idea that half the population was not alive during the second Intifada. And what it also means is that upwards of 70% weren't even cognizant during the second Intifada. So this idea that they can even have a conceptualization of what the West Bank is like, they just assume it's the opposite of what they're living in. So they look at their situation and they say, well, you know, we have we have this wall. We can't go anywhere. We have we have errors. We have, you know, a truncated sea they were allowed to go to. Uh, We have this. So they must be living in some sort of luxury comparatively. And um, so this kind of misconception exists, but it's not a negative one. It's just uh, so, you know, I get asked all the time, you know, how long did it take you to get here? Or how did you get here? Or um, but the older generation who, you know, many times still speak Hebrew. Um, and had jobs in Israel, you know, they're, unfortunately, this is going to sound bad, they're dying. I mean, they're such a small percentage of the population and they're dying. Um, And so like something I witnessed, um, I didn't post about this, something I witnessed um, last time I was in Gaza was because, you know, for a year now, 20,000 Palestinians are allowed to have a permit to work in Israel. Now, I don't think we have the time to go over the intricacies of this permit. But something I found very interesting, I was sitting in a cafe and there was this guy who, you know, there's a guy who's probably in his early 30s, maybe late 20s. And another guy who was with him who was like 50, 55. And the guy who was 50 or 55 was explaining to this guy who was in his late 20s how to go through errors, what the process is like. And he was explaining to him basic Hebrew. Uh. Ani Like, you know, this basic 101 Hebrew just trying to teach them, like, what do soldiers say to you at the checkpoint, and how do you respond to not get shot? And I was just so fascinated by this conversation, because this is something, you'll see this in the West Bank, you'll see this in Jerusalem, you know, Palestinians teaching each other basic Hebrew, um, and basic stuff like how to go through a checkpoint, um, which is horrible that they have to teach him this, but anyways, that's another topic for another day, felt this implied. Um but yeah, I was fascinated by this conversation and um you know this kind of stuff because this older generation he had he and he even said at some point he goes you know, the the younger one asked the older one, when's the last time you went? And he said, It's 1999. <laughs> the last time I was allowed to go when it was 1999. And you know, the idea that you know this guy had a permit. So I mean many people lost their permits in the first Intifada. Um so such a small population of Gaza actually has exposure to the West Bank or Israel or Jerusalem except for their TV screen. That's all they have. They have the images of TV. Now, imagine how lost Palestinians from the West Bank are when they go to Jerusalem. You know, they go, most Palestinians in West Bank have never been to Jerusalem, except when they were a tiny child. They, don't, they obviously did not remember streets or buildings or things like this. They were just in awe of Jerusalem. So when they get a permit when they're 30, they're lost. They don't know how to get around. Everything's in Hebrew. You know, you don't know who's Palestinian, who's Israeli. You don't, you know, you don't know who to trust. You don't know how to, now imagine that a hundredfold for Gazans. So it's very typical when we have partners who come from, uh, who come from Gaza to visit the West Bank for me to try to meet them somewhere, to try to give them a, you know, a tour. And every single time I get the same comment, what a weird life I lead to be a Palestinian from Gaza and I'm being shown around by Chris, the American, to understand my own homeland. You know, I get asked in gods all the time, you know, what's Al-Aqsa like? What's what's Jaffa like? What's Haifa like? What's Nablus? I I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, is the Kenefe and Nablus really that good? And I always go, first of all, yes, yes, it is. Um, and they're like, explain the texture to me. And this is like an intimate conversation. And like, it's one I take very seriously by that. I know I'm making it sound like kind of comedic for the, but it's a very serious. I take it very seriously. Because this is something they don't get to experience. Every white foreigner who comes to Palestine has kenefe. From Nablus or Nablus, uh, Nablusi uh, kenefe maker. They don't have that in Gaza. This is, their, this is one of their national foods and they can't even eat it, the authentic stuff. They can't go to pray in the most important mosque or church. Because yes, there are about a thousand Christians in Gaza. They have a whole neighborhood in Gaza City. Um, you know, they, can't even, they don't even know what their own holy sites are like. And you know it's so hard to explain this to people. Like I have such a hard time conceptualizing Gaza in general because it's such a it's such a you know I don't want to say a wild place, but it's a very interesting place, very sociological. And I always have to try to detach myself from that academic perspective just to try to learn the street level. But this idea that people don't even know something that is for me, you know, uh, you know, it's only sixty kilometers away or a hundred kilometers away. Something that for an American is like a daily commute. So this idea that, you know, I'm sitting there explaining what Kinefe tastes like in Nablus or what the inside of Al-Aqsa looks like to people from Gaza, it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking because they know they'll never get there. They know that. And if they even are, you know, they might even be too scared to go. Like, let's say they get a permit. Maybe they're too scared to go. And I would totally understand that. It would make perfect sense to me. I have one more question. Probably not going to be a comedic one
2: either. Yeah. Um, your wife is from uh, Kufraqab. Kufraqab is a Palestinian refugee camp, which was then divided by the Israeli, uh, you know, with a wall of separation. And um, I guess I want to make my connection to Jerusalem and plug, uh, relying on, on on this kind of story. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the story of your wife, uh, you know, being from Kufraqab?
3: Yeah, um, so for those who don't know, Kufar is uh is east of the wall. If you've ever been through Columbia Checkpoint going towards Ramallah, that's Kufar Also Columbia Refugee Camp is on the right side in the valley. Kufar is the rest of it. Kufar is uh I like to call it the wild, wild west of uh not only the West Bank, but of definitely Jerusalem at least. Um it's anywhere between seventy to hundred thousand Palestinians are living there. So, depending on your math, anywhere between say twenty-five to thirty-three percent of the East Jerusalem population is living in Kufar Aqab. Um So, like I said, it's east of the wall, which means that so for people who it's for people who are what's called len they their family reunification applicants, um, because it, they live in Kufar Aqab because it's the only place they can live together. What do I mean by this? People who are a Jerusalemite who marry a West Banker. They have to apply for Lenshema, for family reunification. They have to apply to Israel to be able to live together in Jerusalem. Because if they live together in the West Bank, the East Jerusalemite loses their blue ID. So the only place they can live together right now is in Kufraqa. And they have to wait 5, 10, 15, 20, 100 years to even get a permit to be able to live together on the western side of the wall. Most never get this. If you're, if you're watching the news and you see Israel approves or denies X number of family reunification, uh, the overwhelming majority are denied or pending. That's a more, that's a more uh, typical response. So in Kufraqa, it's it's a wild west in terms of, it's considered the municipality of Jerusalem by Israeli law, but Israel treats it like it's part of Ramallah. So if you go there, meaning that they don't, they don't supply water, they don't supply electricity, they don't supply internet. Um, so, you know, we live in kufad yet also, by the way, people still have to pay the Jerusalem tax. Israel doesn't collect trash. There are no police. Um, and not that people would really want police, but you, you understand what I mean. Um, so you have this area that is completely irregular. All the buildings are illegal because the Jerusalem municipality only approves Palestinian building on 13% of the municipality of Jerusalem. So they don't approve Kufordaka buildings, but people have to build because people got to live. So Kufordaka is three square kilometers, and you have upwards of 100,000 people living on three square kilometers in mostly high rises. So I live in a 12-story building. Most of the new buildings they're doing are now 16, 18, 20 floors that are unregulated so when you're thinking, oh, what's a big deal about unregulated? It means there's no permit to build, which means there's no oversight for it being built. That means if it collapses, you die. <laughs> that's it. That's all that happens. So uh, this unregulation is a huge thing. Also, it means that any day the Israelis could come and demolish it. Now, of course, I think that that's a small possibility today, but it's a possibility in the future. So you have people who are living in a precarious situation. Um, you know, maybe mixed marriages, maybe, um, it's the only place that they can afford to live because Kufar you're buying an unregulated apartment, an unregistered apartment. So, you know, the price is cheaper, but it also means that your roads are really terrible. Kufar has the worst traffic in all of Palestine. And you know, whenever I hear people complain about Tel Aviv, I'm like, oh, you're, you're cute. Um, <laughs> come to Kufar Um, so you have basically people building on top of each other in Kufar Aqab to be able to be in a line that Israel drew called the municipality of Jerusalem. So, you know, most people who live in Kufar Aqab, they work in Jerusalem, they work in Israel, um, and they are Blue ID holders, they're East Jerusalemites. Um, And so crime is rampant, there's a gang war going on right now in Kufar Aqab. Um, It's also because uh, Ramallah does not allow um, um, wedding celebrations. They don't allow wedding celebrations in Ramallah to use guns. Um so they come to Kufiraqa. So, you know, in Kufiraqa we get to celebrate every wedding that comes by from Ramallah. You know, they they shoot the guns and shoot the fireworks, but yeah, recently there's been a gang war going on. So, you know, sometimes you have to ask yourself, is it a, is it a ziffe or is it the gang war? Uh, I think it's a ziffi today. Um what time of the year is it? Um so it's a wild place. I mean it's incredibly depressing. It's so tight and congested, and everybody there is this living, you know, um, paycheck to paycheck, just struggling to stay under the radar and struggling to maintain their center of life in Jerusalem and fear that the Israeli Ministry of Interior is going to revoke their ID, which is a very real possibility. 14,000 people have lost their residency. And Kufa Aqab is a prime location to simply just one day for the Israelis to cut off from Jerusalem. You know, this is one of these things. It's very funny. Uh, and I'll make this the last point, Roberta, because I know I talk too much. Um, so, you know, constantly see in the news uh, that there's a settlement potentially going to be built in Atorot. Atorot is uh, where the old airport used to be for Jerusalem. There's an industrial zone there. It's a, it's a hideous area. The Israelis have made it hideous, but it could be very nice. So every now and again, the Israelis say, oh, we're going to build a Haredi uh, settlement in Atorot. And, you know, the PA gets very mad and, you know, people post on Twitter, oh, they're going to build a new settlement. People in Kufar Aqab kind of get a little happy because Kufar Aqab is right next to Atorot. So they believe... That if Atarot mm-hmm. gets built, that there's a lesser chance that Kufaraka will be cut off from Jerusalem. Because if Kufaraka gets cut off from Jerusalem, suddenly a hundred thousand Palestinians are going to flood into Beit Hanina, into Shuafat, into Jabal Mukaber, uh, into all these places where there is no there is no space now. So it's a it's a wild it's a wild place. Um, you know, I, I hope to never have to write a book on it. <laughs> Not that I've ever written a book in general. Um, But it's just one of these places that, uh, you know, whenever I see in the news, it's I I swear, it's like the worst reported place in in media because people like to call it a suburb of Ramallah or people like to pretend that the Israelis actually do anything there. Our trash gets collected like every three weeks. And so the trash is typically burned um, because the Israelis don't collect it. Um, And, you know, even last month, uh, maybe six weeks ago now, the Israelis just came in and shot a dude in his own house and then claimed that he's tried to stab them. Although he was shot at an angle that clearly uh, that he was on his knees at the time. They said he was. So they said, oh, he jumped to his kitchen to grab a knife. So he was. But yet when he was shot, he was shot at an angle that he had to been on his knees. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, no, Kufarakab is um, it's been wild living there now. Uh, It's very interesting. The, The longer people there are not known for being very nice. But the longer you're there, the more people get used to you. You know, the kids in my building thought that I was... Uh, they, they called me TikTok for the longest time. The kids live in my building. And so I thought it was just because I'm white. Um, and they just thought that every white person has a t- or is on TikTok. And then I realized they thought that I was Burak. Um, the Turkish meat. Because they kept calling me the meat TikTok guy. And I was like, why are you calling me the meat TikTok guy? Eventually, like, you're the guy who's on TikTok who plays with the meat. And so I showed them a picture of Burak. They said, yeah, that's you. I said, thanks. No, I'm... <laughs> I think he's better looking than I am, um, and I was not wearing the tarbush at the time, by the way. Um, so it wasn't a Turkish thing like that. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a weird place. I mean, I highly recommend people go, but just know that it's awful. <laughs> I'm not. I'll never be a travel salesman or a travel agency for Kufa It's um it's intentionally bad, and that's exactly what it is. It's meant to be like this.
2: This was uh, Chris Whitman, currently the head of office for Israel Palestine and Medico International. Uh, Jerusalemites and Gazan, uh, traveling between localities and around the world, originally from Boston. Chris, thank you.
3: Thank you very much, Roberto. It was a pleasure being on.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook